Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. So welcome to Round Hill Radio. Our guest is Sarah Drummond. Sarah, it is great to have you back on Round Hill Radio. You've been one of our favorite guests. And um, Sarah is the founding dean of Andover Newton at Yale. She's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and she is an author who focuses uh, her writings on ministerial leadership. So we are really delighted to have you aboard. Welcome to Round Hill Radio. Thank you, Ed. It's wonderful to be back. So because, you know, you really don't have much going on at this time of year, uh, we thought this would be a great time to ask you some really tough questions, you know, bring you on the podcast, give give you a chance to relax, you know, something like that. Hey, my students are in exams, so it's only fair. Oh, that's great. All right. So you can let them know times are tough for you, too. And uh, <laughs> so I, I was stewing on a few questions and uh, over the past three years, you know, especially with the beginnings of the pandemic, there have been so many questions about what is life like in the church? What is going on with the church? And you're very involved, uh, I'm, I'm sure, among other things, but certainly helping people to prepare themselves for ministry in the church and service to the wider church. So we sent you a few questions, gave you a little bit of time, a little bit of advance warning here. And I want to share those questions uh, with you and our listeners, just as I've written them out initially. So uh, one of the things that's pretty inescapable when you're reading literature or listening to podcasts about ministerial leadership these days is about the, you know, the decline in numbers that's been going on for actually a very long time. This was well before the pandemic, but in some cases, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. So over and over again, we hear statistics about the decline in numbers of the church, probably the decline in its significance as well. And then reports of people who no longer express an interest in it. We even have special names for them, like the nuns and the duns, you know, people who are just done with it. So the question we had for you was, why stay? Why and why is Andover Newton at Yale still preparing people for ordained ministry in local churches? So, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Well, first for the question about the nuns and the duns and why stay, why come back, I'm a really passionate believer in faith community life. I really do believe that there's something that happens when we come together and share our most troubling moral questions and seek guidance from each other on the biggest decisions that we have to make. And I do think that many who would categorize themselves as spiritual but not religiously affiliated simply need new options and new expressions because the options and expressions that have been presented to them for whatever reason just haven't fit the spiritual questions that are on their mind. So I'm unapologetically pro-church. And I do know that there are some who've been terribly hurt by communities of all kinds, including churches. Sure. I know there are many who have come to distrust institutional life of any kind, but we have another word for institutional life, which is communal life. And I really believe that we are built 
for communal life. And I actually feel very affirmed by some of the more distressing dimensions of the pandemic in saying that we really weren't meant to live in isolation from each other. Right. When we did and when we do, lots of things go wrong. As for educating ministers for churches, I often wonder how do deans of other kinds of professional schools handle the same kind of question? So if I get the question, which I actually do get from from many very informed people, including alums like you, Ed, of uh, theological schools, including Andover Newton Seminary, I get that question, why do you prepare people for ministry in churches? Pastors and congregations will ask me, does anybody still want to do this anymore? I sometimes wonder if they mean, I'm not sure I want to be doing this anymore. (laughs) Are you really getting more people to do this? Well, my my answer might be similar to what it would be if I were a dean of a journalism school or a dean of a medical school, which is that the forms are changing and we need to educate students for this. But the communal need, the communal hunger is still there. So we don't say to a dean of a medical school, are you still preparing doctors for a clinic when so many people are seeing their doctor via telehealth? Sure. They have to keep the knowledge fires alive. Do we say journalism schools really aren't necessary anymore now that people aren't reading newspapers? Well, certainly journalism schools that only educate for newspaper work have no business existing, but it's um, it's uh, it's their responsibility to connect with the field itself, learn what is needed and figure out how to put what we have to offer where people are able to get it. In our case, it's putting before people the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the um, admonition that we're supposed to love God and love each other. Yep. So does that mean that as students are in seminary now, they are, are they increasingly conscious that the form uh, which they might encounter when they leave school could be the small gathering at Starbucks on a Saturday morning, not necessarily the what we have been accustomed to calling church on Sunday morning, or it might be the online gathering on Thursday evening. Is there, has the educational uh, apparatus shifted to prepare people to work in those different forms, just like journalism school students now have to shift, you know, to, to experience what work might look like when you're not writing for a paper in the same way. Does that make sense? It does. And absolutely, the shift is afoot. And our students have not lived through a time where that shift wasn't already taking place. Right. Uh-huh. You alluded in your introduction about uh, uh, um, to the fact that religious participation in the form of membership in an institution has been on the decline in the main line since the early 1970s. There were some surges and some bumps in the evangelical world. America remains a very religious country. What that tells us is that we need educated religious leaders to help to decode the culture using theological frames of thought. And that decoding and then programming requires a level of knowledge, education that really transcends 
program planning, development, and evaluation. Mm-hmm. Our students do not need to be informed that the church is not going to be what it looked like in 1950 because none of them had been around in 1950. And if anything, I'm finding I have to persuade our students that leadership in a congregation is one really wonderful way to engage in theological meaning making and have that be your job. Why do I need to do that first? Because they have been told by so many that that dream will not become real. Yeah, it's but they never up. even dared to dream it. Mm-hmm. And second, because the market is out there. It's in churches where our graduates are getting jobs. So ask any soci- sociologist you want um, to predict what the job market is looking like in ordained ministry in the locally governed congregation. And they will tell you that there really isn't an adequate algorithm for predicting that because when you take into account the huge wave of retirement that was supposed to happen in 2008, but then didn't because of the economy crash, and then people who postponed their retirement, and then people who decided eventually they really had to retire. Then people who discovered during the pandemic that this really wasn't the right field for them, which happened in many caring professions, including ministry. Sure. And then you look at the number of people graduating being so small compared to what it might have been in the locally governed traditions 20 years ago. And a sociologist will say, I don't know what the job market looks like, but here's what I know. Our students are wonderful and they're getting great jobs. They're getting great jobs in congregations. They're also getting great jobs in hospitals and schools and in local nonprofits and in global nonprofits. So they're not one trick ponies, but we would never dare educate them to be one trick ponies. We would never do that to them. Not in this market, not in this culture. So maybe this actually is a segue into the other question that uh, I had shared with you. Are there courses being taught in seminary now that weren't taught before the pandemic? Because there is such a shift and expectations are changing. What, you know, positions are available? Who, as you're saying, that's changing. We don't know how that, what that's going to look like next year, let alone five years from now. So how do, how is that showing up in the course offerings uh, at the, at the seminary level? Well, first I'll answer the question in the form of what I think people think I'm going to say. When I get that question. I never know what you're going to say. So (laughs) neither do I, Ed. What people often think I'm going to say when when they ask the question, what are you doing or what are you teaching differently post pandemic or what were you what were you changing during the pandemic? They think I might say something about um, technology platforms that are you teaching classes for your students on how to use technology to get into living rooms on a Sunday morning? The answer is no. Why? Because our students are averaging in the mid-20s in age, and they already have tremendous knowledge. They are digital natives born onto the internet. They're not like me, in other words. What's that? They're not like me, in other words. (laughs) Nor me, nor me. Thank you very much. And our, our students who are older, we do have some students who are in a second career situation. Uh, they 
learn technology the way most ministers now learn technology, which is you learn it because you have to. You learn it because you need to use it. You don't learn it in the abstract. So what we've found that our students need from us much, much more is good old fashioned education about ecclesiology. They know how to put it on the Internet. It's the it that we have to help them define. It's the matters of ministerial identity, the matters of understanding what is a church and what is a church not. What are our obligations to our community? What are our roles and how can we share them? How can we share leadership of worship with partners that we didn't have to share with before? We've always known that ministerial leaders need to be able to work with artists, namely musicians. We've got an Institute of Sacred Music where there's meant to be a lot of dialogue between those who are going to be liturgy designers who are using words versus who are using music. Now, ministers need to be able to work with people who can make technology happen. But that's not about technology. That's about ministerial identity. That's about leadership formation. So an example of an area where we have uh, created a more robust program, again, people think we're going to say technology and we say not really. Where we've really doubled down is helping our students learn more about how to build community. Since the pandemic began, we've introduced two new courses. One of them is on the role of the minister in social justice leadership in a community. And another on how to talk to strangers, how to build community within a group and between a group and its wider sphere. Those are the two courses that we've introduced. Why? Because we really do think that if a person has a clear sense of ministerial identity, they know who they are, questions about how to connect through technology, through new means, through travel, through visiting in the congregation's neighborhood, through Starbucks, that follows not leads the question of ministerial identity formation and clarification. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, my, my experience of seminary myself is there was, I went to a school that placed a very high value on community organizing. So some of those skills never go away. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, learning again, how to talk within your congregation about issues that matter, but also how to talk to strangers. I do want to backtrack because you used a really cool theological word and I don't want to just rush past this, but say a couple of words about ecclesiology. Sure. It's a big $5 word. It doesn't crop up in conversations a lot, you know, so I don't want to miss this opportunity to get a decent definition. Well, thank you for slowing me down there because we do kind of throw that word around here in a divinity school like it was, you know, yesterday's news. Ecclesiology is the theological study of faith community and a person who is trying to think ecclesial ecclesiologically is trying to make sense of what church is and why church is so a good question that we might um, might pose to somebody who studies ecclesiology is is my spin class church 
the question would become, well, let's talk about that. They wouldn't say no. And they also wouldn't just say yes. Uh We in the United Church of Christ and Congregational Church talk about church as a place of word and sacrament. But the um, the book of Acts broadens that to say that the uh, discipline of being part of a church is about learning and it's about um, having fellowship together. In addition to breaking bread um, and uh, doing good works. So a, a person who cares about ecclesiology doesn't take for granted by any means that church is what happens inside the building we call the church. So when people say things about how, well, the church isn't the building, it's the people, or the church isn't the building or the people, it's about faith, it's about God, it's about an abstract concept. They are not doing good ecclesiology because they're trying to say that the church is any one thing, and it's not. Hmm. There's a church that burned down not too far from us, Ed, on Sunday morning. Did you read about that in the paper? Hmm. There was a church that burned down. The UCC congregation in some Connecticut town I'd never heard of, which is amazing, given that I'm from Connecticut. Right. I hear a town name pretty much every day that I've never heard before. And people were consoling themselves when their church burned right down to the ground by saying, well, it really wasn't about the building. Like, well, what does that really say to the people who are grieving the loss of the building? Mm -hmm. Is it say that their tears are ill spent? What a terrible thing to say. Are they saying that somebody who thinks their church is now all gone, that it's not all gone, That's true. Mm -hmm. So again, ecclesiology is um, the theological framework that we use for thinking about questions like, what is this whole church thing? And it can't just be a a quadrilateral shaped building in the center of town. It's got to be more than that. All right. So speaking about the more than that, nice lead into the next question. So one of the things I was curious about, um, What's the best book that you have read about God recently or ever? And maybe just to clarify, you know, I asked this because if that building that we're talking about is about a community, it's also about a community of faith. Yes. Maybe it's a community of faith of, that includes people who wonder about God or praying to God or, you know, having a clue about God. Um, if some of those people were thinking, gosh, I wonder what Sarah has read that you know, may have opened up some new vistas of understanding or reaffirmed something that you needed to have reaffirmed. What's that? Is there one book that sort of speaks to you in that way? Well, I was really glad that you sent me this question in advance because at, like you, Ed, I am a voracious reader and I would have looked like a deer in the headlights if you had asked me that in real time. We try to be compassionate. I do appreciate the compassion. Thank you. I definitely uh, would need a lot more time to think about the best book about Mm -hmm. the Christian faith that I've read. But one book that I actually just finished a couple of days ago that I really liked a lot was Anne Lamott's new book. Are you familiar with Anne Lamott, Ed? Very much so. And she'd be, I think, someone who'd be very attractive to a lot of our our listeners. So we'd love to hear about this new book. And and do you happen to have the title as well? I do. I do. The The title of the new book, which just came out a few days ago, actually, is Dusk, Night, Dawn. 
And it's not really a collection of short stories. They're all memoir. Okay. And she definitely has written, you know, she's written fiction. She's written short stories, but it's her work of works of um, personal memoir that have always really touched my heart. So this memoir is written at a point in her life where she's in her mid to late sixties and has gotten married for the first time. So she's got a wonderful sense of humor that anybody who has ever been married or been in a long-term relationship with somebody they can't get away from definitely will laugh out loud at many points in this book. What I always appreciate about Anne Lamott is that she is self-effacing in her humor Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't sound Mm self-negating. She is a mother and a grandmother. She's in recovery and she's a Christian and all of those different dimensions of her life interplay with one another. My two favorite moments in the book that I actually stopped a car. I was listening on Audible and I stopped my car to text a friend after hearing these pieces because they just blew me away. One of them is her new prayer. You might be familiar with the traditional Anne Lamott prayer, which is waking up in the morning saying, help me, help me, help me. And going to bed at night saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm praying that one 50 times a day here at the last week of the semester where everybody's tired and I'm just trying to be as gentle as I can with myself and everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Just not be this way. So that's one. And then another is she tells a story about taking out the traditional uh, 20 question quiz for a person who might be concerned about how much they're drinking or using a Mm -hmm. substance. And it's a quiz to help you figure out if you might need some help with a substance abuse disorder And what she did with the quiz is she substituted the word thinking for drinking. And by the third question, I was just crying with laughter as I thought of myself. So do you find that thinking is interfering with your relationships? (laughs) Do you find that thinking is causing you not to enjoy your life as much? Have you found that thinking is getting in the way of your work productivity? Yes, yes, yes. I think we could have a lot of fun with that, inserting a variety of words in those sentences. Oh, my gosh. She's wonderful. I I completely and thank you for mentioning the book. Uh, Over the years, I've had so many people in my congregations who have really appreciated her, uh, you know, just kind of rough edged honesty and down to earthness and she has she has benefited so much from her life in her community of faith that has loved her and welcomed her and stayed with her through all kinds of trials that's great thank you so much for that um i think i want to focus last actually on the last question that i asked you um christian century magazine has been around for a long long time And they ran a series for quite a while. And I think actually they ran this series several times, uh, different iterations of it anyway, over the years where they would reach out to scholars and writers and all kinds of, you know, different people who are thinking a lot about the church or wondering about the church's well-being. And the question was simply, how has my mind, how has your mind changed? 
And so I asked you that question. So maybe this would be a concluding thought. Sarah, how has your mind changed? Well, since I already gave you another $5 word in ecclesiology. Great. Are we going to get another? A second. Yeah, I'll give you a second. This is maybe a $3 word. Most people will know this one. All right. Uh, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the theology of incarnation. Hmm. The in the fleshness, the way in which Jesus had to come among us and share our common lot had to be present to us. God could not send a drone robot. It had to come in the flesh, God's teacher, God's voice, God's son. So that theological concept, which I think sometimes I've set aside saying this whole idea that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, it's just not that important to me. Mm. I, I Not to say that I do or don't believe it, but if somebody asked me what's most important to you about your faith, I would not have said that Jesus came to us in the flesh mm-hmm. until now. Ah, until okay. now. Where I think my faith has really changed, and this is, I think, in part because of the pandemic, but also in part because of my work in theological education. So the pandemic demonstrated to us what happens when estrangement sets into a community, when people are really not talking to each other and not connecting with each other and being reminded of each other's common humanity. Partly that was accentuated by isolation that we had to engage in to keep each other safe during COVID. In other ways, we saw that in racial reckoning where communities that were characterized by different racial subgroups had just not been in contact, had not been connecting and communicating with each other, thus causing empathy to wane and violence to rise. Similarly, political divisions became much more accentuated. They become more accentuated when you don't have to go and run into each other at the grocery store or at your kid's hockey game. If you have accidental encounters with people who are different from you, you're made mindful that they're human just like you. And that has something to do with flesh, with bodies. So I... um, I was already thinking about this concept and this question quite a bit. As Ed knows, and some of you might know, Andover Newton was located in Massachusetts. We moved to Connecticut. One of the reasons we became an affiliate partner with Yale Divinity School was because like us, Yale Divinity School was really determined to educate people for ministry in person. You might not believe this, But Andover Newton is one of six UCC seminaries in the country, and we're now the only one that is not majority online learning, online teaching and education. I did not know that. That was a big risk for us. We had to make a lot of changes to get to the right scope, scale and size to really reinvest in educating people in the flesh. Right. So I've been thinking about this question way before the pandemic, because many schools go in the direction of online learning, because that's what people who are called the ministry often say they want. And we want to meet people where they are. No question. Mm -hmm. 
But as we invested, you know, toe first, then a foot, then a leg in online learning, we were as a faculty at Andover Newton saying to each other, this isn't enough. This isn't quite right. It's one thing to take one online course and three in person. It's another thing to never actually come to the campus and see each other in the flesh. So that's how I've changed. I think that I needed in a way to experience the desolate isolation of a pandemic to be reaffirmed that there is something that we don't quite understand that happens when we get together and whatever it is, it's good. Hmm. Well, I love the way you connect this Christian imagination around incarnation. You know, the word becomes flesh with now the direction for the school and that this is a high priority to be able to say this. And I think some congregations have also had to have this interior discussion. Uh, you know, are we going to be mostly online? Are we going to be mostly in person? Are we going to try to be both and therefore hybrid? It's an ongoing conversation. Yes. But I think that's a powerful um, priority that you've identified for the future of the school. And therefore, the students who are part of that process are going to bring are likely to bring that vision out into the wider world. So uh, really appreciate, I really appreciate your answer to that question and to all of these questions. It's been just wonderful to have you uh, in conversation this way. And we wish you and the school all the very best as the future unfolds. Andrew Newton is very, very fortunate to have you in its leadership. And also I think from, from everything you've said, Sarah, you feel very fortunate to be in that environment where you're working with such extraordinary people and I really do especially yeah. extraordinary people who make up our wider community including Round Hill Church and including you Ed well Sarah thank you again and blessings uh, for the as things wind down and, and we hope you'll have a really wonderful season of summer thank you Ed and again thanks for having me on you're most welcome Thanks for listening. Roundhill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Roundhill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillradio.org.